It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Let's get Brexit done. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where normally, very normally, I look at the news and the views from one side of Atlantic from the perspective of the other. That's the general format of things on the podcast, but every now and then, you'll know because you are a loyal listener, I like to do a deep dive with somebody and invariably they've got something um, kind of interesting to say. This is one of those episodes. I'm speaking to Michael Pembroke, who has got uh, a book out. Michael, what is the title of your book, sir? There are two titles in different parts of the world. So the title in America and uh, UK, Europe is America in Retreat from um, the short story of America's leadership from World War II to COVID-19. The title in Australia is Play by the Rules, but the publisher thought that was too indirect for for a US audience. So why should we be interested in America since the end of World War II, since the Japanese surrendered? um, Why is that a period of history which you felt you needed to write about? Because if I'm hearing correctly from your accent, sir, not only are you not an American, but you told me before we started that you're actually in Melbourne, Australia. True. I'm more a global traveler than anything else. I have spent a lot of time in America. At the age of 17, I was on breakfast television in Dallas talking about Nixon going to China. I was in Chicago when the Obamacare legislation went through. I was in New Jersey, Princeton, a couple of years ago in the first year of Trump's presidency, and there have been lots of other visits over the time. I've got to know it pretty well, Um, but, you know, I had a... I was fortunate as a child to spend a lot of time in Asia and a little bit of time in the UK. Um, and I feel as if I have much more of a, of a sort of well-traveled Asian perspective than most, most Americans. There are plenty of exceptions, of course. And that's part of the problem, I think, with, um, with the current 
the US approach. Well, then, you ask me, uh, Michael, I, I then put it to you then, sir. If you're one of these global traveling elite, surely then mm. you can't understand how exceptional America is. That fundamentally, doesn't matter how expansionist American policy is, you scratch that very lightly and you have isolationism. You have a country that believes that its uh, constitution is unique, that its people are unique, that it invented freedom and democracy. I'm not an elite in the sense that I don't um, uh, understand and, and have in, uh, engagements with and deal with uh, people on the ground. You know, I, I don't just spend my time in hotels. I'm fully aware of the resentment in right across the Middle East, and I'm fully aware of the befuddlement in East Asia at the confrontational approach of the United States. Now, you asked me a moment ago, Rofield, about why we should look at uh, the United States since World War II. The last 75 years have actually been an extraordinary time because the United States has, over 75 years, um, conducted a, a foreign policy that has routinely attempted to transform other countries in its own liberal, capitalist, democratic image. No other country has ever done that. It's had damaging consequences. We've had wars in Vietnam. We've had wars, much extended wars in, in Korea. In fact, it was my book on Korea which led me to write this story because I was disappointed, even appalled, by the overreach which became evident to me uh, on the Korean Peninsula, which has resulted in the current situation that uh, looks like resuming under the new president. You see, and this is just a little bit of history, the UN Security Council authorised a mission to restore peace and security at the 38th parallel. That was achieved after three months. But the then president and his Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, had no intention of stopping there. They wanted regime change in Pyongyang. And having complained about the North Koreans crossing the 38th parallel heading south, they then had no compunction about crossing the 38th parallel heading north. The result of that was that US-led US troops, and the US represented 95% of the UN force, went all the way to the Yalu River on the Chinese border. That upset the Chinese who had warned them not to do it. The Chinese had no intention of coming to that conflict until the Americans ignored their warnings and went up to their border. The result is the Chinese came in, and this seemed to be little known to most readers. It resulted in the Chinese turning the Americans around who then had to undertake the longest military retreat in US history. Then the war sort of coalesced around the border and went on for three more years. So the terrible carnage, the three million civilians approximately who lost their lives, was all the result of overreach by the United States. North Korea was where napalm first made its name. We didn't see it, we didn't know about it then because there were no television cameras as there was in Vietnam. At a time when the world was discussing whether the carpet bombing of the Japanese cities in World War II and the carpet bombing of German cities in the same war 
was justifiable and should be curtailed, the Americans flattened the whole of North Korea. They dropped more bombs on North Korea than in the whole of the World War II Pacific campaign uh, and a huge amount of napalm, as I've said. So various U.S. officials who I quoted in that book on Korea said that there was not a building left, not a, not a brick standing on a brick. Michael, Michael, I'm, I'll quick, quickly jump in. I, I put it to you, sir, and tell me if I'm wrong. America is the only country which has tried to create in the post-war period countries in its own image. Was, was that what you said? No other country has uniformly mm -hmm. and routinely tried to convert other countries or transform other countries in its own liberal, capitalist, democratic image. So where would you put French action in, um, in, in its former colonies since they became independent? Arguably, it's the same thing. The French are always meddling in Chad or Niger or Mali, a Central African Republic. That's entirely different. Uh, and, the, and the British uh, colonies were the same, such as Malaysia and so forth, uh, and, the, uh, and the Portuguese colonies in, um, in Indonesia. The colonial empires, such as Britain, France, Portugal, were very slow to let go of their colonies and resisted the, their attempts for um, uh, freedom. And they fought to retain their colonies. That's entirely different from engaging in a global campaign to transform other countries in your own extreme liberal, democratic, capitalist image. We now have the situation, Royfield, mm -hmm. um, where there are U.S. troops in more than 170 countries. The budget for defense and national security exceeds $1 trillion, and the United States spends more on defense than the next nine countries combined. I always thought it was... He has an empire of bases consisting of about 700 or 800 bases and installations around the world. Not, there was nothing comparable to that done by any other country. The, the closest you get is the Roman Empire, which had an empire of bases, which stretched from Scotland to Spain to North Africa to Syria and the Balkans. But we know what happened there. And that's, it's an interesting historical parallel, which I've had to talk about recently. There were two great empires 2,000 years ago, China in the East under the Han Dynasty, and the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire became stretched because of its militarism and its empire of bases. It had a, a, an imbalance of trade with China, surprisingly, <laughs> so it's not new, uh, and uh, it could no longer afford its militarism, and its currency was debased. So the, the Roman Empire crumbled. Now, I'm not saying that's exactly what's going to happen in the modern world, but you cannot sustain the sort of militarism that the world has been subjected to, and we've just become used to it, and most people don't even question it, without there being consequences. That trillion dollars spent on defense by the United States, I said, was more than the next nine countries combined. That includes China. The China expenditure on defense for a population which is four times greater, is about $200 billion. Uh, so no, it's, it's, okay. a, it's a, the, 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 the worrying figure, trend. The, the figure which is 
used to explain America's uh, spending on the military is is you know no one's arguing against that, and it is far in excess of. I always thought it was the next nineteen uh, no. comparable countries, but 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 nine. Either way, it's much larger than the next. There's no question of that. But isn't this um, a price that America is paying to keep the global system afloat? Uh, we have 28,000 US troops in Korea. Uh, we, I don't know how many that we have still in Germany. And that is no longer on the border of the, of the Cold War by any stretch of imagination. It, it should be Poland. And yes, there are US troops in Poland and in, in the Baltic uh, countries. Yes, it's defense, but ultimately it's safeguarding and underpinning of the post-war economic system so that these bastions of uh, capitalism or these new bastions of capitalism, because Poland would be, what, just, just 30 years, a capitalist country, can trade freely. Um, it's almost like having a navy, isn't it? You know, what, what does the British Navy do other than just make sure that pirates don't disrupt commerce. That's what the US Army is doing, and we should thank them for it. I don't think it is useful at all, Royfield. I'll just have to disagree with you on that. I don't Michael, think Michael, don't think that necessarily I, I, everything that I say, I utterly agree with. I, I, just, I sure. just need to try and poke holes into some of your arguments. That's, that's fine. That's fine. You are not sustaining the, uh, a, a global order. You're actually, by having troops all over the world in 170 countries, you are creating instability and perpetuating instability and perpetuating resentment. Now, just come back to Korea again. There are 82 bases still in Korea. There was an armistice treaty in 1953 a term of the Armistice Treaty was that the parties would, in, would come together the next year to agree on a peace treaty to, re, to resolve the political issues. The Americans would not even consider doing so. So we still have no peace treaty. The big problem as far as the North Koreans are concerned is the fact that they have these US bases just across the border, all directed at them. And there's no doubt about this in my mind. They have said that they will agree to denuclearize if there were steps taken to secure their peace and security. And they cannot have peace and security while the Americans maintain hostile forces in South Korea. Now, unfortunately for the North Koreans, the Americans now want to keep those bases in South Korea and another hundred odd in Okinawa and other parts of Japan and their own bases in Guam because they now consider China to be their greatest threat. China actually is an economic competitor, but it is not a military threat. China doesn't seek global military domination in the, in the same way that the United States has sought to achieve over the last 75 years. And nor does it seek to export its ideology or its system of government. We've had proselytizing democracy for 75 years, even longer actually, but quite especially in the last 75 years. China won't send invasion forces around the globe, uh, as the Americans have done time and time again, most recently in Iraq. There are 193 countries recognized by the United Nations, and a few more that it doesn't recognize, one of them being Taiwan. China, and I'm not an apologist, I'm just drawing a contrast, China believes in multipolarity. It, it doesn't want to rule the world. 
its objective is to advance its own economic success. So uh, that we're in complete and utter agreement with. You know, uh, China has no military bases in South America. It has none in North America, none in the Caribbean. They, they are building a naval base in Djibouti, or at least having access to one. They have... Um, They've done a deal or at least uh, helped to bankrupt the Sri Lankans so that there's going to be a Chinese naval base there. But their main theatre of uh, interest is the South China Sea, these fake archipelagos that they're building so that they can have um, you know, uh, wider territorial rights. And this is rubbing up against whether it's the, the, the Philippines or Malaysia, etc., However, um, I think where this connects to my, my previous point, though, Michael, is that if you view American troops around the world as underpinning, whether it's right or wrong, it's not part of my argument, but it underpins uh, American troops in Germany have underpinned stable democracy in the heart of Europe since 1945 and has underpinned the economic system. You literally couldn't have the European Union without those US troops there. So it underpins the global economic system as we understand it. What China is doing is trying to create a new economic system, which in many ways looks like a liberal democratic e economic outshoot with this illiberal kind of communist government. But they're doing exactly the same thing as the Americans, but they're, but they're not using troops. They are giving cheap, relatively cheap loans to African states, South American states, Caribbean states, and then they become in hook to China. They get high on this cheap Chinese money, and then that does buy China influence. Discuss. Whatever China is doing to advance its economic success is not resulting in the bombing, killing, uh, and uh, murder of of civilians around the world. The number of people across the Middle East who have been displaced or have had their families um, uh, torn apart uh, and in parts of Asia, uh, over, and then of course in earlier in the 60s in Vietnam and before that in the 50s in Korea, is, is, just, um, is just obscene. There have been millions and millions of people who've suffered at the hands of uh, U.S. attempts at um, regime change and interference in foreign countries. And I could have mentioned South America too. So I don't have a problem with anyone, any country, engaging in economic competition. Uh, and if that results in extending their influence advancing their trade success well and well and good now you and and there's a lot of simplification out there about what china is doing no other country is providing all of the infrastructure or all of the funding and the infrastructure throughout africa and south america that china is doing some countries have negotiated bad deals and china has under pre, under world pressure has agreed to revise and um, review some of those deals. The port of Hambantota in Sri Lanka is not a Chinese naval base. It's a port. It's a civilian port. And I've explained in the book 
as have many others, that it is not bankrupting uh, Sri Lanka. And it was a deal done by the Sri Lankan government for its own advantage. Because you, you, they, you know what, Michael? They, it was a slight slip of the tongue of me to say they're bankrupt in Sri Lanka. But the Chinese do actually own the port and can kind of now do what they wish with it. So it's almost like extraterritorial rights that they have on this port. If what's I, wrong with that? I don't understand what's wrong with that. And I don't understand. But more fundamentally, I don't accept the, the notion without I- examination that somehow the presence of US troops underpins the global order. I don't know what underpins means in that context. Okay, I'll, I, I don't see. I'll, I'll give two examples. I'll give two examples. I've given the example of uh, West Germany, uh, of Germany. Uh, but prior to unification, obviously, it was West Germany. Uh, there is no way that Cognate Adenauer, et al., Willy Brandt could have not only planted the seed of liberal democracy in the heart of Europe, but then had the German economic miracle if, the, if communism wasn't kept at bay, physically kept at bay at that border. The, the, and then there's two other examples. Taiwan is a, an economic miracle relatively relative to its size. And that is because up until relatively recently, the communist Chinese government has never had the wherewithal to threaten that. Ditto the same with South Korea. South Korea has gone literally from zero after the end of the Korean War to to hero status, one of the biggest economies in the world. And that is because North Korea um, cannot seriously invade it or destabilize it. So these are just three examples. North Korea does not want to invade South Korea. This is a myth. It it doesn't want it. It wants its own security. the, the reason why um, there were NATO forces in Western Europe was to create uh, a buffer against any Soviet invasion threat. Russian archives, since they've been available at the, after the end of the Cold War, have not revealed a single instance of a serious plan by Soviet Russia to invade Western Europe or to engage in a first strike uh, against the United States. The more militarism you have, the more it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, the more enemies you create. I I, I agree, I agree. But surely we view that with the benefit of hindsight. If I'm Dean Atchison in the 1950s, and then all of a sudden my one military advantage, we are the only country to develop the atomic bomb, then all of a sudden the Soviets do. I'm pretty worried. All of a sudden, I'm building the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization. I'm building NATO. I'm, I'm building all sorts. I think with the benefit of hindsight, you can say what you're saying. But, but surely, we're saying that from 2021, not 1952. Well, Royfield, one, one has to be careful here. There, uh, I'm not saying this about you, but there are a lot of generalities spoken by people. Now, for example, 1945... The U.S. had the atomic bomb. It dropped it on Hiroshima and then on Nagasaki. Nagasaki was not in the least bit justifiable, and nor probably was Hiroshima, and I've explained that in the book and relied upon many of Truman's generals to support that proposition. The Russians, the Soviets, did not have any atomic bombs for a number of years. Their first atomic test was 1949. 
But what did the Americans do? They surrounded the Soviet Russia with missiles and nuclear weapons. In 1947, the president approved the first anti-Soviet war plan. It was called Plan Broiler. It was a plan to drop 34 atomic bombs on 24 Soviet target cities. This was before the Soviets had even conducted an atomic test. You can understand why Soviet citizens were prepared to forsake butter for guns. They felt threatened. And it's a, it's a very early example of how the United States took a wrong turn shortly after World War II. You know, Barack Obama, on his last day in office, apparently said to his closest friends and uh, friend and advisor, Ben Rhodes, that his greatest worry was that we were wrong. I think with great respect, the United States took a wrong turn. And I was uh, delighted to find in the course of my research um, a book written by one of Roosevelt's, a member of his brains trust called uh, Tugwell was the surname. He wrote this book in 1971. It's called, of course, it's the same theme as mine. It's of course from Truman to Nixon. Well, my book is could be called Wrong Turn from Truman to Trump. I think the United States has to become as recognized that it is part of a global fraternity. It's, it was a leader in establishing the United Nations. Uh, when it established that organization, there were 50 members. Those members were nearly all supporters or allies. Now there are 193 members, and the feeling at the UN General Assembly is one of great frustration at the American unilateralism and its hypocrisy in relation to uh, the principles on which the UN Charter was built. The very first principle of the UN Charter, Article 1, requires respect for the sovereignty of individual nations. One of the other foundational principles is the importance of not engaging in unilateral uh, military aggression or interference and leaving it to the collective security mechanism of the United Nations. Well, that's just, okay. uh, it's been ignored from, from very, very early on. But there are some examples, there have been some examples in the, where America has been right to ignore the UN, has basically said, we're going to try and work within its auspices, but this collective action, it takes too long, we need to act. First Iraq war, Iraq invaded Kuwait, is an example where America did actually kind of get its allies on board. And even... Royful, uh, I'm sorry, I have to interrupt you. That was a classic example of the United Nations Charter working. That uh, was that, a, that, well, that, that's what I said. And I was just about to say, and they had people in you know, countries like Syria, etc., cetera, uh, then, then helping it. Okay. But, but the, the, then there is another. So that's the UN working within. Sorry, the US working within the, the UN um, yes. framework. You, 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 make it, you make my point for me. But then there's a second example. Um, U.S. action in the Balkans uh, with the dissolution of Yugoslavia. The U.S. under Clinton tried to hold back and let the EU sort that out. And they, forward slash we, because I'm British, could not do that. 
and it took a few surgical airstrikes from the US uh, military to stop the Serbs dead in its tracks. And, also, and ditto Kosovo. Uh, it wasn't a few small airstrikes, um, but Royfield, there are some times when you have to leave other people and other nations to solve their own problems. The NATO bombing of Bosnia was not justified by the United Nations and it, its consequences are, are arguable. Now, you're better off holding back and showing some restraint. Restraint is not something which we've seen. The best approach, which happens to be China's approach, but it's, I'm not. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Saying that China's perfect is non-interference in foreign countries. Okay. Um, I, I think there have been some examples of American restraint since 1945. But as I said, I'm somewhat being adjunct provocateur in our conversation and just trying to uh, see if there are any holes to poke in some of your arguments. But, let, but let's course, mo move on from you know America from 1945 to 2021. I'm a student of history and the parallels, the analogies between the American empire and the Roman empire are, are legion. And, and one of the ones which I always um, kind, kind of is really home for me is um, the amount of um, non-white combatants in American uniform it's much higher than their uh, percentage of the civilian population. And the same thing happened in Rome, but they weren't non-white, they were non-Romans. So you had lots of uh, Germans, uh, Celts, etc., in the Roman army in the last 150 years. How do we get comfortably to this multipolar world that you're describing, which has, I'll draw some 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 rough lines. So you have um, an economic economically robust China, 
which is fueling um, maybe some of the smaller economies in Asia. You have a, a robust Africa, which is full of entrepreneurial spirit in places like Kenya, which is a, has a mini tech hub, uh, Nigeria. Then you have the US and you have a strong and confident Europe uh, under the auspices of the EU. And then just for uh, slight whimsy, you have a Kanzuk. You have this loose association where Canada is in bed with the UK, Australia and New Zealand. How do we comfortably get to that space, that place, knowing what we know about current domestic American politics? I'm not sure that we will. I have um, been interested to see in the last week the articulation of President Biden's China policy uh, and the reinforcement of the, of the position that was taken during the Trump presidency and some of the statements that have come out from the new Secretary of State Blinken and the Asia advisor Kurt Campbell all make it clear that the United States, even under the presidency of Joe Biden, maintains the position that it is engaged in some sort of clash of civilizations or ideological struggle for democracy against China. If, if that's the case, <laughs> the curious thing is that China doesn't think that it's engaged in any sort of long-term ideological struggle. Uh, the feeling is not mutual. What we should do in the modern world, and this includes Australia, which is very closely aligned with the United States just at the moment, and Canada and Europe, is cooperate with China. And unlike what the conservatives say, cooperation is not cowardice. Uh, we, the whole world has much to gain from US-China cooperation. Uh, apart from peace, it, it means it will mean expanded markets, accelerated technological processes and progress, the avoidance of any sort of arms race, progress against COVID-19, of course, a robust global jobs recovery, and overall reduced tensions. So, okay. We, we need to understand that the world is about economic competition in the 21st century, not about military dominance or the export of ideologies as it was during the Cold War. How can we sit down and cooperate with China economically when there isn't a level playing field vis a vis? China and importing to China, and also there isn't an, uh, a level playing field with intellectual copyright. Aren't, the, aren't those two key things where, whereby you talk about cooperation with China, but China is not cooperating with the West? You negotiate. Uh, that's what diplomacy is all about, and that's what economic competition is all about. You don't threaten to go to war. You don't send warships into the Taiwan Strait, you do your best to negotiate. It can be done. It can be done. Th there have been negotiations for some time uh, in the World Trade Organization about China 
allowing more European involvement in China. Europe, by the way, and the UK as well, have a more enlightened approach to cooperation and collaboration with China. The United States has a defense and strategic strategy, which it produced in the early years of the Trump presidency, which absurdly characterizes China as as its enemy. It's not an enemy. It's difficult for the Chinese, let alone me, to understand why it's an enemy. It's it's an economic competitor. It's a peer competitor. Uh, The problem is, and I've, I've heard very distinguished American political commentators say this, America will not tolerate a peer competitor. And that's just, frankly, Childish. Uh, it's just, but but you know, surely there's an ex- the existential threat from China is th- its model of economic um, power that at the heart is it's not communism as we'd understand and understand it from 1945 to 1991. It's not right, but it's definitely not uh, liberal economics, is it? It's definitely not the vote or freedom the way that Americans seem to frame freedom all the time. So if you view in China that way, this is an existential threat to philosophical and ideological hegemony. But why is it an existential threat? It's just different. The, the, the world is made up of many diverse and different systems of government. There are many types of folly and malevolence which masquerade as democracies. There are many types of uh, authoritarian states. They're just all different. We all have to collaborate with each other and coexist. In East Asia, um, the powerhouse nations, most of the ASEAN nations, want nothing to do with the confrontational approach being exhibited by the uh, US military through the Indo-Pacific Command. They might have their grievances with China. Some of them do. Not all of them, some of them do. But they all want to coexist with China. And if it, if it just so happens that through the course of history, China becomes an even greater economic behemoth than it is now, well, that's just the tide of history turning. And you adapt to it. Uh, and you can profit from it. If you want to collaborate, you can profit from it. You don't, you, things might change, but there is profit to be made in dealing with China and countries like um, the US and Australia and others who are closing their minds to China are uh, are missing out on an opportunity. How much of this current strategic stance of America is to do with its military industrial complex? It, It has a lot of men in uniform. Let's say if tomorrow America and, and women, Royfield, men and women. Thank you, Clint. If America was to withdraw from Germany today, was to withdraw from uh, the Baltics, was to withdraw from all of its far flung bases around the world, what would it do with those returning men and women in uniform? <laughs> It would create a great unemployment problem and a great drain on the resources of psychologists and uh, counsellors. 
it's a problem that they've made for themselves. You know, one of my um, heroes is the American Senator William Fulbright, who was the longest serving chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And you talk about the military industrial complex. Fulbright said the most important problem in the United States, and he said this years ago, was that the American people were beset by the assumption that force is the ultimate proof of superiority and that when a nation shows that it has the stronger army, it is also proving that it has better people, better institutions, better principles, and in general, a better civilization. Well, I'm afraid Fulbright was pouring scorn on that, and, and I'm completely with him. The military industrial complex is a real burden for the United States. It's got to start drawing back and beginning to conduct its economic affairs on the basis of a less militaristic approach. Um, it will be good for it and for, and for the world. America's got to get its house in order. Um, you know, you can't maintain any sort of global leadership and respect uh, in circumstances where you've been hypocritical and where your own house is not in order. Some people uh, are quick to criticise internal matters within China. Some journalists always grab for the Uyghurs or the conduct in Hong Kong. They are parts of China. We don't, in the West at least, rush to condemn the United States for its systemic racism or its excessive gun violence or its gross inequality. But they are terrible features of society, which America seems to have more of than many, many other countries. But surely so, the, di the difference is there that though the rest of the world always points a finger at America for those things, America is having that debate with itself. Your average Chinese citizen cannot talk to the Chinese government about the treatment of the Uyghurs or the anti-democratic shutdown in Hong Kong. So there is a difference. No country on planet Earth is perfect, but within the democratic world, a debate can be had. That's true. That's true. And that's, that's why I would prefer to live in a democratic country. But we can't all choose to live in a democratic country. Uh, so we have to accept that there are different systems and different governments in different places uh, adopt a different approach to maintaining a civil order. Now, if the Chinese approach is over the top as far as most of us in democratic countries are concerned, but it's their choice. You know, it's, that's the way they do things. It's not a reason for saying that they're an existential threat or that they're an ideological threat or that we should go to war with them. That's just their approach, which we should respect. For example, in Saudi Arabia and many other countries, there are, uh, there, there are aspects of society with which we disagree. Now, for ideological reasons, the Americans support the Saudis. But, you know, there are differences all over the world. And uh, I think the carry on about China is is um, is is not sound. Mm. I'd like to see things change uh, I, as a human being. And, and there I, are many good bodies around the world that you know, can can do that. But it's it's a you know, we have to accept and coexist. Michael, I in large part 
agree with with some of the things that you say. The only thing I disagree with before I, I ask Clint if there's anything I'd like to chime in with is that I think you paint a slightly simplistic view of America's position in the world because I think America is slightly hoisted by its own petard and it has all these men and women in arms, in uniform around the world and they have up until let's say the economic crisis of the early 1970s with the oil crisis underpinned the post-war economic world. Having those troops in Europe did do that. I don't think anybody can argue against that. Having American troops in Japan meant that there was a liberal Japan, meant that whatever the rights and the wrongs of America in the Korean War, lots of wrong. It meant that there was a democratic, well, not a, it wasn't democratic at all then, but there was the seeds of the modern Korea, South Korea, could uh, could germinate. So you have the economic powerhouse uh, of, of Korea that we have today. But I think that you you underplay the fact that there are many countries around the world that are quite happy to be under the American military umbrella. Poland is a case in point, and all those Baltic states, utterly a case in point, that there is no serious Polish politician in power or in opposition today that um, doesn't want there to be a US base on Polish uh, ground because of because of history and because because of Kaliningrad, you know, it's right there. You know, there is um, a dagger point at the heart of Poland. However, how can America retreat militarily without uh, destabilizing lots of regimes in the short to medium term? I don't know. Uh, Clint, I have monopolized this conversation for the last 40 odd minutes. Um, I've tried to stand up for your country um, <laughs> in large part because I can't let Michael have it his own way. He's got his book out. He, he's here to pump his book and he's done a very good job uh, taking seven bells out of your country. But why don't you? Uh, but where do you stand uh, with Michael's uh, general uh, thesis? And uh, the mic is, is all yours, sir. Uh, well, Royfield, you should absolutely monopolize the show because it is your show. Yeah, a lot of this is interesting. And um, I'm sorry to say I haven't uh, read your book yet, Michael, um, which I'm sure every author loves to hear from someone who's about to have a comment or a question. Um, but it is it is now on my list. Um, and I was just kind of uh, kind of picking back off of uh, something that Royfield said at the end there is, is it possible to, to kind of, you know, draw a distinction or at least draw some nuance around uh, the the difference between, if you want to call it American adventurism, I think is a is a euphemism that gets tossed around, um, and you know kind of the wider impact of the American role internationally since World War II. Royfield mentioned the international economic order, but there's also NATO. There's the United Nations. Um, you know these are are institutions that. Fundamentally, the United States supported and stood up in many cases and, you know, invested in and made tools often to their own advantage, but, you know, not necessarily to uh, the detriment of other nations. I'm just wondering if there's a nuance there between what I would say is a good thing that the United States has done in terms of international institutions versus what you have um, correctly criticized in terms of uh, American uh, military interventions where uh, it did all go wrong. Clint, we should all be grateful for the role that the United States played in establishing the United Nations. 
we can be grateful for the role it played in establishing NATO. NATO has served its purpose. It's a North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It was designed as um, uh, a buffer against Soviet Russia. It, it has no longer any useful purpose. And the reason why Putin, one of the many reasons why Putin is unhappy with the United States is that beginning under President Clinton, after the Cold War had ended, the United States actively sought and achieved the constant expansion of NATO closer and closer to Moscow. So NATO forces are now closer to Moscow than they ever were during the Cold War. And for what reason? NATO is, is a destabilizing force. I have to come back to Royfield. I do not quite know how it can be said that the presence of troops and bases in, say, Japan or, say, South Korea actually underpins the economic prosperity of those countries. Their economic prosperity was underpinned by um, by loans and economic um, involvement by other Western countries, especially by the United States. That's what that's what underpinned their I, economic I, I prosperity. Did give, I, I did give the myself troops didn't. I, I, the troops did. I, I did slightly give myself a little bit of a, a get out. And one of the last things I said was up until the no early nineteen seventies, and because all of those economies were set on their path by then but it was um dare i say it uh, american troops in the heart of western germany meant that there was no way there could be a return to nazism full stop and that's regardless of the marshall plan loans the physical troops there meant that and america didn't overtly um, have its troops walking around the streets of bonn or cologne but that's what it did. So it didn't only um, project power uh, to protect these uh, this new Western European frontier against uh, the so against uh, the Warsaw Pact. It was also an implicit threat uh, against um, extremism in those countries. But from the 1970s onwards, I think you made a really valid point, and I'm inclined to agree. Uh, why there are American troops in Okinawa now? I don't really know, other than it's um, a forward base potentially for any your Far East Asian um, theatre of war. You know, it makes no obvious sense. Um, other thing, for me, it's kind of quite key that you've not mentioned Poland, uh, because that is the obvious um, redoubt to your argument, because the Poles are the most USophile, if that's even a word, of nations that for them it's incredibly important they petitioned for there to be u.s bases in poland because they're scared of the russians and historically they have every reason to be scared of the germans and the russians uh, and sorry Rufford, your, your question was why didn't i mention poland or, or? You, you know what you know as clint says it's my show so i talk too much yes <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, but yes, that was my question. Look, I remember uh, Gdansk 30 years ago. 
Uh, the current leadership in Poland is is extremely pro-American, pro, extremely right-wing, very anti-communist. That's just the way they are at the moment. Um, there's no, there is no current existential threat to Poland. Uh, as I said, um, the NATO forces have created the fear and apprehension and the enmity that currently exists in Eastern Europe. They've outlived their usefulness. Michael If you're going to withdraw troops from Germany, as the United States has done and is continuing to do, I understand, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm not sure why you need to have multiple bases in Poland as well. Uh, I'm just not, not, not with you on that at all. No, well, It's a political issue. The, the well, Poles want American military support because it's makes it's good polit- good domestic politics in Poland. That's a- all it is. Absolutely, and uh, we, we we need to start start to to wrap this up. And I'm getting messages saying, "Am I am I finished yet?" <laughs> uh, well, Clint, Clint, if you, if you can spare another couple of minutes, and if Royfel sure. doesn't mind, I have I have yeah. kind of a, a a concluding question. Yes, uh, maybe. Um, and and I'll say I. Um, I, I do disagree with you somewhat, and I mean that very respectfully. And, and as I said, I haven't read your book yet, and I look forward to, to possibly being convinced. I go into it with an open mind. Uh, and do you have a, a kind of a counterfactual? And I know counterfactuals are only thought exercises, but do you have a counterfactual where after World War II, um, the United States kind of embraces its um, isolationism, which is a very strong element of, of the American people. Um, and I mean, do you have a counterfactual where the, the last uh, 70 years turn out differently if the United States is not uh, as adventurous and as, as involved as, as, you, uh, as you have criticized them for? Three years after World War II, the United, Nation, the United States engaged in a, an act of interference in the Italian general elections that was far more uh, blatant than anything the Russians did in 2016 in the US presidential elections. That set the tone for the next 75 years. It has resulted in a complete loss of respect over time as one overreach has followed another. It completely fell apart, in, in, in my mind, after the Iraqi evasion in 2003, uh, which could not be justified on any basis other than Bush saying, you know, you're with us or against us. Uh, There was no pretense at trying to adhere to the United Nations Charter in that case. Um, the, The counterfactual, meaning what would have happened but for these interventions, well, there'd be a lot less people alive today. Uh, There'd be less resentment across the Middle East and across South America and Central America. There'd be, we wouldn't have had 20 years of conflict in Vietnam. Uh, It's, uh, we we would have a different world uh, in which, in which different power blocks would would have emerged. uh, And it it wouldn't have been just for America to try to change things, to change the world in its own image for its own benefit. Um, And that's now beginning to happen as China becomes an unstoppable force, but not a military threat. And I just think we've got to get away from this whole idea of the US being 
or needing to be militarily dominant around the globe. It doesn't help anyone. Uh, Michael Pembroke, thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic. and uh, Thank you, Royford. For having a good old intellectual tussle with uh, with Clint, Clinton myself, as I kind of alluded to. It, I, I'm not totally a- against your premise, uh, but good listener, it's for you uh, to go out and to get uh, Michael's book and see if you um, agree with its general thrust. Uh, Michael, what's the name of the book again? America in Retreat, the short story of America's leadership from World War II to COVID-19. Sounds more to me that it's uh, wishful thinking about uh, uh, you that you said that America is in, in retreat, Mr. Pembroke. But maybe what we should do is have you on again in a year or two. Then we can maybe discuss uh, the foreign policy uh, moves of the Biden administration. Also, good listener, what you can do, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, why don't you follow us on Clubhouse, uh, the new social media app. If you have an iPhone, um, you can can join up. Uh, Badger a friend if you don't have an invite, get an invite. And then if you are on the app, go follow Mid-Atlantic. We do our shows every Thursday at 7 p.m. UK time. Generally, when it's not daylight savings hours, means that it's 2 p.m. Eastern and um, 11 a.m. Um, if you'd like to send me an email, and we do have um, an email and a half uh, from our last show, you can send an email by either going onto midatlanticshow.com and hitting contact. Also, quite simply, you can send one through to me, Royfield, that's R O I F I E L D, at gmail.com. But until then, Look after yourselves, take care, be safe, and don't forget left to center politics is right politics. Bye-bye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.